Hi, my name is Peter, and this is Bottle by Wine Podcast. Today's podcast is very special to me, because back in 2000, when I was just 14 years old, I watched a television program on Peter Sisek and his winery in Spain. I remember buying heavy paper and off-white envelopes to write him, asking to join him for the harvest. And now, here I am, 16 years later, working as a sommelier and producing a wine podcast, and today I'm interviewing the guy who started it for me. In this interview, Peter gives us the story of his first years at Hacienda Monasterio, how he later founded Pingus and his current projects in Bordeaux. I hope you'll enjoy it as much as I did. Hi Peter, and welcome. Thank you very much. So we agreed uh, in Danish, uh, of course, but yeah. now we tr- shifted towards English and to start in Denmark and, uh, and where everything began, yep. with you at least. Yeah, I mean, I've, of course, uh, uh, often I'm, I'm being asked what what do I do in in Spain, being Dane, and of course it is in a way rather unusual, and I don't know that many Danish people making wine in the world, but certainly not in Spain, and I, I think we're a couple, but for me it, it's because of course I've been, been in it all the time, and for me it has a, a clear logic to it. Um, I started in Bordeaux when I was very young, I, I, I came to visit my uncle, and uh, when I was really young, I was 14 or 15, And I thought that was really marvelous to make wine and everything. I, I never really knew or thought of, about how how it could actually come about. So it was more more of a childish dream of of one day becoming a winemaker. But after I finished school and and things sort of, I was uh, I went to Bordeaux to work for my uncle for a year and a half, and decided that that was what I wanted to do. It was really interesting and. Um, Of course, the normal way would go would be to go to to um, to wine school. Being in Bordeaux, I mean, the the university in Bordeaux would have been perfect. Um, I had done uh, the duad, which is sort of a tasting course, and also general viticulture and everything and and enology. Uh, and uh, but when it had to be come down to to real thing, um, uh, I I sort of studied what you would study as a, as a normal enology student in, in Davis or in, in Bordeaux. And I found out that most of most of the subjects could be studied uh, in Denmark at the agricultural school in Denmark. So being young and, and sort of a bit, I said, well, I'd like to do that. So I, I decided to, to become a, a cultural engineer here from Denmark. I'm very happy I actually did that. I think the enology schools are great. But it's also true that they are quite technical and 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 they are quite dogmatic according to where you study. It sort of seems to be certain subjects that, that sort of become become dogmas and stuff like that. So I'm very happy that I, I I was not brought up in any kind of of of, of idea of what one should be like, because it later on gave me the the, the 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 freedom to 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 do my own stuff. And it was very important when I came to Spain because I found this only half-painted picture, you can say, in Ribera. So it was it was interesting that you had the possibility of putting in your own version or your own vision of, of what 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 could be. You know? And I, I think it's it's still very important for me to um, to have this this sort of freedom to to do what I really want to do. Even though said that I would. I, I, I probably more than anything has a very very classic vision of what what wine should be and what it, what, what 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 it can and and why I think it's in, interesting. 
so uh, it's still I still I still believe it's it's important with the freedom but but uh, again I'm, I'm based in a very sort of classic idea of 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 great minimal stuff done done by hand basically today it's like we have we're reinventing the wheel no of, of doing stuff but in in just saying that in the in the in the 19th or 20th century when you when you plowed by horses you didn't have tractors so <laughs> there's a lot of stuff uh, going around that but it, it's actually very good we later found out because some of these tractors they're very heavy they, they destroy the soils and and now to be able to come back to something more it's not sort of out of a romanticism or anything it's actually really really important for the soils and uh, and more than anything this is this is where my real interest lies is how you can develop vineyard soils so you are from from a wine family you could say like your uncle making yeah wine. I mean, it's a very untraditional wine family because uh, my uncle he uh, came to South Africa in the late 60s and um, and ended up working on a on a wine farm and and he found out that he had talent for this and and so we're really back in, in before everything was sort of so that was also very classical what what he sort of learned from South Africa and um, so when he came to Bordeaux he came also to a quite traditional place uh, Chateau Louden where he started working and um, so yeah and his his vision of wine was also quite traditional if you can say that so um, but again again because he was not a traditional winemaker from a winemaking family uh, he was also free to 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 find his stuff and and, and um, he did a lot of interesting work uh, on yeast and yeast cells and what what they can and what they cannot do and um, he I know from a fact, uh, because he told me myself, Denis Dubaudieu, who just recently died, unfortunately, fantastic person. And I really, I, I just got to know him the last two years of his life, and an amazing guy. And um, But he told me that, that um, the work that Peter Binding had been doing in, in the early 80s in, in, on Chateau Aru, uh with the yeast had inspired him very much, and he sort of developed the whole yeast school in, in, uh, in Bordeaux, and very, very interesting work. Uh, that later on has taken on a sort of a perverse thing where you can sort of direct the taste of what you want. But but it's really interesting to try to understand what, what yeast is and where you have the yeast. And, and this is a, a work that I continue now a lot with our vineyards. And, but it, from sort of going back to what, what it really was and try to develop and give the best conditions for your, your own sort of yeast culture in, in the vineyards, it has a very specific expression every year. It has, you can call it, sort of the terroir of the yeast. So it's very influenced by how the climate has been, how much rain, how much everything. They are, of course, yeast are mushroom, fungi. So, um, so of course, they're, they're extremely uh, influenced by, by climate and everything. So, so it's a very, very important thing that we, we come back to, um, to what really good yeast are and how can you create the right conditions in the vineyard for the yeast to express themselves. I heard a very interesting, uh, yesterday, uh, my cousin uh, sent me um, uh, a link to a, um, an interview and, and, and program about Henri Chaillet. And um, he talked about how important the yeast was. And he, he, was, he was a very, very interesting man, being at the same time really old-fashioned, at the same time quite 
quite modern in his approach to a lot of stuff. He was a, he was a perfect link between pre-philosophy and modern winemaking. So um, I'm very much inspired by what he did, and and um, and I was pleased to hear that one of his very important things was was to respect the yeast, and he did all his fermentation with with uh, his indigenous yeast. Very important. So Peter was very important. He's also important for for the name of of your wine. Uh, could you tell the story? Yeah, <laughs> yeah, that, that, that's sort of uh, a weird story. Um, uh, of course, he's called Peter Vinding, and um, me being Peter, my aunt she was not very happy with the fact that she should have two Peters in the house. So um, I was nicknamed Pink from a Danish cartoon, uh, Storm Peter, who who um, had this thing called Peter and Pink. It was just, Small cartoon, very very nice cartoon. So I became Ping, and, and over the time, Ping turned into Pingers. And, and when I had to decide the name for the for this wine experimental wine I had made in '95, I decided to call it by nickname. So it's, it's a short short story. We have to go to uh, to Spain. So how how do you end up in uh, the Bielo? Also weird weird thing. I had when I finished my school um, in in. Um, Uh, at the agricultural school, I sort of, I didn't really know what to do if I should work in agriculture in Denmark or, and then again the wine world sort of took over hand, and I, that was what I really wanted to do. So I, I went to California and um, uh, through my, uh, I'd worked there uh, in '85 with Selma Long, who was at that time the, the sort of the famous winemaker in California. She'd been winemaker at Mondavi, and she'd been hired by uh, Louis Vuitton Hennessy uh, to run what's called Simi Winery uh, that they owned at that time and um, so I, 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 she, she was a friend of my uncle's and I, and, and I spent half a year in California when I decided later on in 92 to, to try to find a job in California she helped me quite a lot and um, I managed to get an interview with Paul Draper and, and he offered me a job but he couldn't offer it me straight away so I went back to Europe And um, while I was in Europe, I had this opportunity to go to Spain to look after a vineyard. There was only a vineyard, there was nothing there. It was reasonably planted, uh, but not, not very well. And I had to sort of shape it up so we could sell the property. Uh, the people who wanted to buy it, uh, I'm probably overselling the, the thing. I talked about this fantastic place where you could make a real project. At that time, most, most Spanish wineries would um, buy their grapes. So the idea of having sort of a, an estate wine or a chateau or whatever wasn't really very fashionable in, in that was in '90. So um, they, li they they liked the idea and they offered me the chance to do it. So I had to <laughs> to call and say I couldn't make it to California. So um, I stayed in Spain. That's how it was. But I had no idea. I, I hardly knew the area. I just heard about Vega Sicilia, of course. And I was just at that time Tito Pesquero was starting starting to be known a bit but I'd never been there I had been to Spain many times before my grandparents lived in Spain but near Barcelona so I had nothing to do with where I ended up and I ended up in, in this this area that, that when you first come there it's quite desolate desolated you look into a sort of old western movies <laughs> and um, uh, but I don't know I, I, I immediately liked, liked the place and um, it was just a great place to try to do something different no? and, and you know if, if I worked at at a more traditional winery um, even in Bordeaux I mean it, it's it's difficult to 
to put your thing, your thumb on, on, on something and try to, to you can, perhaps you can try to improve it, but you know you're still trapped by history and a lot of stuff. So, so um, I'm very happy that that I ended up in Spain. Very interesting. So you were setting up uh, Hacienda Monasterio? Yeah, yeah exactly. The place later on became Hacienda Monasterio, and I've been there ever since. I'm still managing, uh, even though it's more the, the big lines now than uh, it used to be much more hands-on, but but uh, I live right next door to it, so um, I'm there several times a week. And um, and I, I, I still decide the, the big lines, sort of, every day, Work is done by Carlos uh, de la Fuente, who is who is the cellar master and has been the cellar master since we started. So he's more capable of, of doing it. But but the, the big lines of of, of yield blending, uh, harvest time. Uh, right now we're, we're just a couple of, of days away from from the harvest. Of course, all those things are are my decision most of the time. So. Did you choose uh, what to plant? Yeah, yeah, I did. I, I did that. That was one, one, one of, I would say, uh, today, one of the very lucky things that happened because uh, when they decided to plant, it was sort of the previous owners, the, the people who had employed me to begin with. Uh, and the reason why Peter Vinding was involved, they, they had this piece of land and, and there was a project to, to plant the vineyard. But they had no interest in, in running it. They were not interested in having a, a, a vineyard in, <clears throat> in Ribera. They had bought a big company in Sherry. Uh, so this was just a small part of it, and they just wanted. Me. And my uncle convinced them that at least you know, at least you can plant the vineyard. So you're selling a vineyard, not just you know, land. And so, so it was planted, but it was done very fast. And they couldn't find enough. It was it was a big, big property, it was 68 hectares. So in order to find enough plants, they could only find rootstocks. Um, so the grafting had to be done later on, and that that was that was my chance because then I, I could. I could decide what to, what to plant uh, or what to graft, basically, and and more, much more important, and which was at that time not so acknowledged, but uh, the whole issue about cloning and not clones or whatever. So we were able to secure some really really good uh, Marcel selection Tempranillo. We got some very good stuff from Bordeaux as well, old Cabernets and stuff that that today you can, you can you can't find it. So we were very lucky in that. So I was I decided to. After looking around the area and, and tasting a lot of wines and trying to determine what kind of style and where we were, and we're only four kilometers from um, uh, from Bigger Sicilia, so it it seemed appropriate to try to to get inspired by what they were doing and what they have been doing for the last hundred years, uh, and they had uh, the possibility they had that they had bought plants from Bordeaux, so they had a lot of Cabernet and Merlot and stuff like that. So, and we allowed to use within Ribera del Duero up to 25% of other grapes and Tempranillo. So so we, we got a, a, a good mixture. Of, the only thing I got wrong was I, I planted slightly too much, not grafted slightly too much Merlot, but the Merlot doesn't work. Uh, it's too, it needs, it's too dry. It needs much more. But did you make a single Merlot, don't you? Uh, yeah, I did. Uh, officially, I didn't, but yeah, <laughs> we did make in 99, yeah. Um, and, but it's, it's one of the only times it actually really came out very well um, in 25 years. So yeah, okay. it's not a sort of a, it's not a very interesting uh, variety for us. And we actually we are substituting it with um, with uh, Malbec. So so we use we still use of course the roots. We still have their 25 years, so we can we can field graft. Uh, so we don't have to to take out a whole vineyard. 
But then you you started to look for an own vineyard, or did you just? Yeah, yeah. Because I mean that, that again, Monasterio was was um, to begin with um, the people who, who who came to the place were um, later on they, they they did become quite serious. But um, in the beginning, they were sort of I think it was just a project to see if they you know do a smart winery and then sell it again or something. And when we started, everything was booming in Spain. We had the Olympics in '92. There was a big uh, World Expo in Sevilla, so there was a lot of going on. And, and Spain had just come out of, of course, of dictatorship, and so there was a lot of stuff. But the economy soon overheated. So by by '94, '95, stuff was sort of slowing down, and 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 I I wasn't really sure about. The future of Monasterio. I had my young family. I had uh, two daughters and my wife, and um, I was really insecure what was going to happen. So, uh, talking to some good friends in Bordeaux, they said, "Well, why don't you make it?" At that time, the whole garage movement had started. Jean Luc Thuin, and, and uh, so so they said, "Why well, why don't you just make your own little wine, and then you at least you have something you can fall back on." So so I did that, and um, in '95 I found a wonderful old vineyard in the central part of Ribera, near to a village called La Orra. And uh, the vineyard, wonderful plant in 1929. Really good, very well run, it was perfect. And I made the first wine, and I just was very lucky to pick the 95 vintage, that was a great vintage. Um, and the wine came out, um, it was pretty, I never tasted anything <laughs> quite like it. And, and um, it seemed to be that a lot of other people who tasted it had <laughs> never tasted anything like it, so it became uh, really, f really fast, very famous, and um, so it, it it enabled me to to start a project on my own, basically. So what was your idea when you? I had no idea. And no, I had no idea. And I, absolutely, I had no idea. I mean, I, I basically I wanted. I, I, since I had, of course, with monastery work with very young vineyards, it, it was my. I really wanted to try to to work on on, on very old stuff. I'd seen all these wonderful old vineyards in Rivera, and, and I thought it could be really nice to try to make sort of the essence or the ur, ur tempranillo, not try to find sort of the, the soul of tempranillo in it, if you can be a bit highbrow about it. So the idea was based in, in, in very little technique, everything, as I said before, done on, 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 on indigenous yeast and, and uh, no technique, also inspired by Jaya. The thing is, I didn't have anything I had to start from scratch, so there was new barrels and everything, and, and it just worked extremely well. Uh, but it also, thanks to, to, the, to the vintage, I mean, the 95 was, was spectacular. And so 96 was also a, a good vintage, not as, I would say, not so profound as the 95. 95 was really until 2014 I haven't made anything that resembled the 95. So it's, that's another thing. You start with... With a bang, and then you you run after trying to to recreate something like that, and you realize until I, I realized until 2014 that these are vintages you cannot make. They are sort of given to you in a strange way. You cannot improve on them. There's nothing you can do. It's just what it is, and you have to stay back and just let it happen. Interesting, but again, <laughs> sometimes there's a problem when it comes to first year. No? You <laughs> you, uh, you you try to imitate it in a strange way. No, so. Uh, but yeah, I was very lucky to, to, to start that year. If I started in 97, I, I don't think nothing would have come out of it and it would just have been another of so many good wines in the world and, and nothing really special would have come out of it. So. Good timing. 
Yeah, 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 yeah. yeah. The thing about timing was that uh, Paga tasted the wine. How, how did it end up on Paga's table? Well, I, uh, the whole idea, as, as I started without hardly any money or, or and, and just as a very small project, you know, that there was, there was nothing I'd, I'd rented, not rented, I sort of lent a small place in a, in a cellar, a friend of mine, nothing, no money and everything. So, so it came as a good thing to, that I was able to sell it on Primera. Uh, so we decided why, with Jean-Luc Dunois and Alain Boutier from Mouzon, that I should try to go to Bordeaux and try to sell it with the rest of the guys in 95. Um, you do that in, in May uh, 96. And I went up there and, and I was able to sell my, my very short harvest. I had thir 13 barrels and uh, we made, uh, yeah, I sold it in, in a couple of days. So at that time, and, and it still is, uh, the, the, uh, the British importers, uh, Corning Barrow <coughs> of Hacienda Monasterio, they came and they were good friends with my uncle as well. So, so they came to uh, Chateau Landeras, that was this place, and they tasted this wine on a Saturday after the whole, you know, en primeur, cooling, tough, tough tasting and everything. And they tasted this wine and they just went nuts, nuts about it. And they had, uh, the following Monday, they had a tasting, private tasting with Parker dinner thing with Parker in, in London. So they asked, can we bring a bottle? I said, yeah, you bring a bottle, go on. So um, that's how he tasted it the first time. And then he tasted it twice since, and then he published in September 96 uh, with a special sort of thing. And, and he liked it, but it's not only that he liked it, it was also René Gabriel from Weinwieser in, in Germany and Switzerland. Uh, it was Stephen Tanzer. He also tasted it, he also gave it a maximum score. Bhutan had also tasted it. So it, it was, I, I don't know how it happened. There was nothing planned. It was really, I mean, it just happened. It just happened. And, it, and it, a lot of people talked about the wine in Bordeaux also, uh, that they tasted this, this crazy wine. And so it, it, there's an anecdote that's also quite, we have a very good friend in Singapore, Dr. N.K. Young, who has been very, very uh, important in developing wine interest in, in the Far East. And, and he'd been very good friends with, with uh, Peter Vinning as well for many years. And when people, they come to to Singapore, they they often invited to his place. And, and um, Fiona Morrison, uh, who later got married to uh, to Jacques Tiampon from Le Pain, she was traveling as she was at that time working for CVB. And uh, she was there and of course was having dinner with N.K. And at that same dinner, Adam Brett Smith from Corning Barrow was there. And funnily enough, the winemaker from Bigger Sicilia, uh, Mariano Garcia at that time, was also there then. So it was sort of an international thing. And so Adam, he had also brought a sample to that. And they tasted it. And Fiona, she had tasted the wine in, in Bordeaux a couple of weeks before. Adam produced this this bottle and, and shared it around the table, and nobody knew what what this thing was. The only the only one who knew about it was Fiona, and she said, "I tasted this wine before, just a couple of weeks ago. It's called Pinkus's from Ribera del Duero." And Mariano, who was sitting there, said, "This is not true. There's no wine called Pinkus in Ribera. I'm from Ribera. That it doesn't exist." So there was actually for a while in Spain that this virtual wine that didn't didn't exist. But it did. I mean, I'd made it. Just nobody knew about it. So. Small story. <laughs>
but then you're making a you're making a number of wines now at the, yeah. at your at your own estate, and I saw yeah. one called uh, Emilie, but I never seen it. No, yeah, yeah. yeah. Uh, from from the place the, the domain if you can call it so Dominio de Pingos. So from Dominio de Pingos, of course, we have Pingos as as important and the sort of initial and the real wine from 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 the domain uh, and comes from. 4.2 hectares planted in 1929. And then my American importer at that time, he um, he thought he had too little wine to work with and he wanted more. And, and of course, that was totally against the idea that we should produce more pingas. We couldn't because the vineyard was only what it was. So talking about it, in the end, I found out I could produce for him uh, some stuff. So we did that. We produced 1,000 cases of 95, a wine that we later on called Florida Pingas. That was sold to the United States, and from there, so we from there on, I, I could see the interest in having a sort of another wine, not a second wine, but another wine. In the in the case of having, for example, a vintage that wasn't good enough, so at least I could fall back on something different. No? So um, otherwise, it would be too fragile the whole thing. And it came up very well because in two thousand two, I didn't make pinkers and only made Florida pinkers. So, so and it sort of has developed into to its own wine, its own, and now it's 35 hectares from the same village as where Pincus is. It comes from four different Lyudis from areas, four areas around this, this village. And sort of, it's a more approachable in a, in a, in a way. It, of course, it's a blended wine, so you can more, you better adjust, so it's not so authentic or personal as, as Pincus is. And it, it has its own following. It's very interesting. A lot of people, the people who buy pingos, they would not buy floor and floor buyers. They normally don't buy pingos. So, so it sort of found, found its own level. And, and, and I think it's in, in its own right, it's a very, very good wine. It's not so terroir driven, of course, because it is blended from, but it's what I call a village wine. If you've been in Burgundy, it would be a village wine. Then I make uh, Amelia, which is a wine I only make to my now American importer, Rare Wine Company, and Manny Burke. And I produce about a year. And it's from a very, very old vineyard. I, I use for every time we, we have to do a replanting thing or we have to... So we, we use the, the selection from there. It's the most perfect Tita del Pais I ever seen. It's absolutely wonderful. Planted in 1895, so it's very, very old. But it's really interesting because we can actually transmit this, this, this greatness of, of, the, of this... There are 500 vines, so very, very small. But, but we use that in a massage selection, and, and, and that, that's why I kept it. In the old days, it used to be blended with, uh, with floor. But uh, I can't remember, 2003 or something like that, Manny sort of convinced me that, that he, should, he should get this, this, this. So it's only sold in America. And it now has its own following and its own little thing. So you're talking a lot about the, the vineyards and the old wines and the... Yeah, mix in this, but yeah. what do you do in the vineyard? I know you organic and later biodynamic, and uh... yeah, <laughs> uh, from from day one, my first vintage in Bordeaux was '83, and 1983 was a special vintage in Bordeaux because there was a lot of storms during the summer, uh, and there was a lot of uh, disease and. And at that time, they just started with modern sprays, systemic sprays, and, and everything. And I remember my, my uh, again, my uncle, he didn't believe so much in these systemic sprays, so we actually used the traditional ones, uh, Bordeaux sprays and stuff. 
and and um, and we had no problems whatsoever. But all our neighbours who were modern and used these systemics, for some reason or another, they, they many of them they lost a lot of their, their harvest and they had a lot of diseases, and nobody really understood why. But the thing is, especially the the, disease, the, the, the sprays that were used at that time, they have a tendency of, of going to the apex of, of the plant. So people, they would be spraying, and then because it was raining so much and sun and everything, and then they would they would hedge, they would cut the cut the, the vineyards, and of course cutting off the apex, then there was no circulation in the plant. So these these systemic sprays, they could not move around in the plant. So. We actually had similar effect uh, in 2015 in Bordeaux. There have been a lot of problems with um, with uh, mildew in the in the um, in Florence's in the, in the before the grape set, and people have lost up to seven to eighty percent of their harvest. And again, the people who were using conventional sprays. Uh, I also do biodynamic uh, farming in in my vineyard in Bordeaux, and. Um, and we were able to we were able to to save our harvest. So it's not always that it's inconvenient to be organic. This is the second year, when, second time where we actually in uh, last couple of years where we've been able to to save. The, the, the whole thing is, of course, you cannot you cannot cure. You can only prevent uh, from being organic. Uh, so you have to be much more alert to go out and, and, and do your spraying when you need to do. So it's not just because the, 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 the stuff that we use are better or anything like that. It's just because we have to be much more aware of what we're doing. Where the others, they, they think they can be lazy and sometimes they get caught out. So it can be a problem. But then there was a, uh, in Pingus, there was a turning point uh, somewhere between 2011, 2012. Something happened. Um. Again, you know, this, 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 the whole idea of when, when you make a wine, especially the, when you de- develop a new wine. I was lucky to have 95 being this special vintage and, and always, I when, how, you know, what did I do right and everything. And you realize that, that as I said before, that, that certain vintages you, you can't do anything about. It is just great. If, of course, you can, you can blow you it up. But, yeah. Yeah, but, but, but if, if you don't fool around too much, you, 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 are, you are given something that it's, you cannot really improve on it. But the rest of the time, you have to, you know, try to adjust to certain things. From day one, we we knew that we we wanted to to do our our organic. The vineyards were uh, already pretty organic when when we took them over, so <clears throat> it was not so much an issue in that. But we we continued, we developed. You get it. You you, you the, the thing when you make wine is is you do certain things in the vineyard. Uh, then you make the wine. And then you bottle the wine, and that that in itself is just three years process. Then you have to wait five five years at least to see what what the real result is. So it's you move forward all the time, but you learn backwards, no? But with a, with a, with a big timing delay. What what you think is good, you only see the result much later, and so you have to adjust. So so it's always sort of a continuous learning process, and and but but with a big delay in it. I mean, the, the, again, the '95, for example, that, that in the beginning, just it, fantastic wine, but it's, it was also it was a wine that it was sort of very old-fashioned with a lot of tannins, and the controversy, of course, was out there if this wine was ever going to to really become really harmonious and a real wine. And it's actually taken 20 years for this wine to to really start showing. It's just last year start showing it, it, 
what it really is. No? So for 20 years, I didn't know what I'd been doing in 95 was actually right or wrong. At the same time, every vintage is different. Um, and we seem to have, I, I would sort of put it into, into phases where, where 95 to, to say 99 was sort of made more or less in the same idea. And it became more and more a thing where it did less and less sort of really believing that, you know, doing nothing would be better. And then I think I got caught out a bit. Uh, 99 had a bit of bread developing and, and uh, not so good, especially when you're not filtering. Uh, 2000 was wonderful. And then 2001, again, it was not as pure as I would like it. So in 2002, we didn't make the wine. So from 2003, I, I had it very clear in mind what I wanted to do. So... So I would say from 95 to 2003, that's, that's sort of the old style. No? Then there's a middle period where you can say from, from 2003 to 2004, it's also with the new winery and everything sort of, and with a lot of control, still doing more or less the same as, as we did until then, but with much more control. We have a fantastic lab that allows so us to... So you analyzed everything? Yeah, yeah, exactly. So that now we really know what's going on it's just not just what we think that's going on and I would say that 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 is a thing that that can go up to yeah 11 as you say uh, in a strange way but then we had then we had 2009 10 and 11 were very big vintages they were you know really big and hot and I realized that in those in these especially the 11 that having low yields and stuff in, in certain vintages is not so good because it sort of forces the grapes to ripen too fast. So it's actually better to have slightly more yield in these vintages. Then, then you can save for, for, for bad vintages like 13 or something. You can, you can, you can have small, uh, small harvests and they would, they would mature in a proper way. But if you have sort of on an average line very low yields, even in, in the hot years, you, you can burn your fingers. And I think we, we, we did that a bit. And we'd also been, we'd been using 100% new wood up till 2006. We started messing around with lesser new wood and everything. And more and more, I realized that, that mm, yeah, yeah, until I, I found out that, that the best results we got from, from 12 months aged wood, not uh, uh, barrels that have been used for, with wine for 12 months. Again, here, this is what I see right now. Probably in a, in a few years, I will realize that that's not exactly the best way to do it. That, 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 that could be... But that, that's, that's what I said before, this learning curve. No? Um, it's always sort of trying to adjust with a big delay. No? So, so, but, but it seems to be that, that from 12 on, we have increasingly also been trying to uh, work a lot with the purity. Uh, the vineyard is is getting into really really good. I mean, it's perfect. It's been since I would say since 2010, really really good balance, and that also helps to to sort of refine everything, the tannins, and we're much 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 more aware than we've ever been. I, I would like to say that we have always been pretty much aware, but I think now we have fine tuned our our idea or concepts of what really is the best possible balance of the wine. So of course we look for a lot of freshness. We look at you know most people, but and also especially the tannins. We're very very keen on trying to get really really fine grain tannins from the way beginning. 
and then the purity. The, the purity is something we work a lot on now. We would rack much more than we used to do. We have adjusted the, the sulfur levels when, when the grapes, they arrive to the winery. Um, we basically use no sulfur at all. And we had been using like 99% of everybody, a sort of a, a standard dose when, when the grapes, they would come into, into the cellar. Not, not a lot, but no, we did use. And the Tempranillo, the Tinto del, del Pais grape is a very reductive grape. We would get sort of what what we used to call sort of noble reduction, which is sort of a, a smoky, especially after the malactin. But it, it is these are tiles that are sulfur sulfur combinations, and we we started doing some experiments with Florida Pingas where we use no sulfur at all. And for all of it, or just for small small small, uh, we make around two or three barrels a year of non-sulfur Florida Pingas. And realized also through the, the lab that, you know, nothing really happened. We didn't screw up the wine or... And it was a very, and, and a very easy way of getting around these, these reductions that, that I became more and more annoyed with. In that line, it's really interesting to see what a lot of stuff is happening in Burgundy right now, where they had gone from, from having this, these enormous problems with Premox and everything. And now you... A lot of the white burgundies, when you taste them, they, they, they really have this, this this smoky character of a bit too much reduction. I'm sure that it will it will, will wind off and everything, but but I'm not sure it's the best way. It's a good way of try, trying to to avoid having premarks, but but maybe they've gone a bit too too far, too far in, in that reductive uh, thing. Yeah. So so it, it it has to be very careful. But will um, things be uh, without sulfur in the in the future? I mean, will they go to to more no, natural? No, things? no. I'm, I, I'm, I'm, we're still we're still looking into this a lot, um, uh, and we have now. We did twelve, and thirteen, and now fourteen of Florida pingis without sulfur, and we must see how they they develop. I mean, they they they're, they're especially with the twelve in the beginning, they were quite nice. Then they went through a phase that I didn't like at all. And now they seem to sort of become something quite interesting. I'm not sure that it's 100% the right way. But the effect of it is that, that we have always used quite a, not a lot of sulfur. We, we would bottle our wines with perhaps maximum 60 uh, milligrams of or PPM, PPM. Um, uh, of sulfur, um, total sulfur. Um, But I, I used to believe very much during the upbringing that it was important. We have quite high pH, so we have to be careful with, with the free sulfur. And so we always kept it quite high, around 25, 30 of free sulfur. And which is not a lot, it's sort of pretty normal. But now we, we, we traditionally we work with much less, 16. I mean, we, we, we do right after my lactic, uh, we would do sort of a big thing and, and, and a lot of cold. And that seemed to, to sort of, and then after that we, we let it sort of, and then before bottling we will, we will raise it a bit. That seemed for the moment to be, I'm not sure, I'm, I'm, I'm 100% sure that's not the right way, but we're still adjusting to find out the, the, the best way of doing it. But it does make from, give us much more purity. And as long as it doesn't affect the, the microbiological stability of the wine, uh, I think that's extremely important. You cannot do this without knowing exactly how you are the state of your wine really is. If, if you have any kind of bacteria problems or any kind of, of, of funky uh, secondary yeast and stuff, then you should not fool around with this. 
I'm sure, and certainly not if you don't filter, certainly not if that, all these things. Uh, and I and I and I really, I'm, I'm really a firm believer in at least the wines that I make are wines that need to be aged for a long time. So we can all do trial tasting and saying, nah, 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 that's all, that's all very well. But it's really difficult to foresee how the wine will be 10, 15 years later. And if you don't start, the best wines I've made have always been where they had the best numbers of, you know, lowest, lowest bacteria, lowest, any kind of stuff. And where we have been careful of not trying to, to risk too much. The, the, the moments I've risked too much, the wines can be wonderful for a few years, but then eventually it will start having problems. And, and you know, for somebody to lay down uh, an expensive bottle like Pingus and then 20 years later they, they find a natural wine, then I think most people will be a bit annoyed. So, yeah. so we, we, we also have a responsibility. But there's a, there's, a, there's, a, there's a big line between, there's a big gap between going total security and, and, and you know, you just bring out the tightest filters and, and sterile filter the whole thing. That, that will destroy the wine. Of course, this is not what we want to do, but we have to be very careful of, of understanding what's going on during the aging period. And of course, the bottling moment is extremely important and, and we don't screw it up. No? So, In certain years, we have to be very careful of, we need to do something, but of course, so we do a lot of trials to find out what is the minimum we can do uh, in order to, to, to protect for the long run. No? And I'm, I'm, I'm pretty keen on, on that. Uh, and I think in reference to the whole natural wine movement and, and what's going on there I mean we, we are I would say probably more naturalistic than most people we do everything with um, our own yeast and we don't add anything and we have the vineyards also done in the, and this is very important also in order to do a really really important and, and, and good natural yeast fermentation. It's very important how your your vineyards are. They need to be very uh, healthy and, and pretty pretty much alive. You need a lot of, of micro, uh, microbiological life in your soils. If you don't have that, if you just leave the field like, you know, don't do anything because nature is beautiful. And it is. Nature is fantastic. But it's also if you treat it in a wrong way. And sometimes by doing absolutely nothing, you end up treating in a in a in a in a, in a, in a bad way. You cannot pretend to make anything great out of that. You can maybe in the beginning, but eventually it will it will blow up in your face. And I don't think anybody. I mean, I can I can understand that that um, some of the issues that are being said that why should wine be clear? Why should wine be? I said you know if 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 you take if you take a wine and you make it and you leave it. What's natural is that it will it will clarify itself. So it's not you know it's not it's not the normal thing that your wine is is full of full of uh, of, uh, of lees and stuff. Of course, if you bottle a wine that is alive because it's still from fermenting or full of yeast or full of bacteria, it will never fall clear. But a wine that is on its own, well made, it will fall clear by itself. Uh, so then you can decide if you want to to bottle it with the lees, where you thereby run a risk. Unless you make champagne or you, or you think that aging on lees in the bottle is, is something positive. Uh, and I don't think in the long run, I mean, uh, for, for, again, it, it entirely to do with the kind of wine that you make and, and the varieties and pHs and all kinds of stuff. 
but in our case, with 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 the uh, with the wines we have, the, the the chemical balance that we have in the wine with with certain, certain some high pHs from the limestone soil, we get three point eight, three point. Uh, it's a it's an environment that's pretty active or pretty easy for for microorganisms to to survive in. So the more you can through rackings and stuff, you can sort of clear the wine. The more you make sure that the aging processes can can go on in a natural way. So you said that you have twenty five percent of uh, of other grapes in Champagnolia. Do you blend anything in? in, in this? this is this has Chardonnay. Huh? Yeah, yeah, but yeah, I mean, yeah. In, in the area, I mean. Yeah, yeah. Uh, so with uh, with um, uh, with with Pingus, we have around one to two percent of other grapes that are uh, Malvasia white. Um, we have a bit of very very little but a bit of Carignan. And we're actually planting, but it will be for floor. We are planting some Grenache. We use in PSI, which is this wine where I buy the grapes. Uh, we use up to ten percent Grenache, and I, I really like that. It's 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 a it's a wonderful grape. That on its own is not so is not so nice, but it has a fantastic cunning ability to lower the pH of the Tempranillo. So. Um, and, and historically, you can see all the vineyards, they were always field blends of other stuff. Huh? The, the, the wine that was produced in Ribera in the old days, in general, apart from Vega Sicilia and Portos and some other, were most of the time blends and made for um, clarete, no? so for, for sort of rosé, ace rosé. No? That, that, that was the wine, the historic wine in our area. And in, in order to make that in the proper way, of course, you blend it with white grapes and other, not always great grapes. Sometimes a lot of bobal that was used to increase the yields and stuff. But um, uh, especially the the, the, the Grenache is, is is really interesting uh, as a blend, uh, five, six, seven percent, really, really good. But it, there used to be quite a lot of Grenache in the area, and uh, we have now we have a very is an interesting program at PSI where we have a map of all the vineyards in in Ribera where they are, who the who the owners are, and everything. Something we've developed ourselves over the last three years, and and we have registered all over Ribera in in what you can call pure vineyards of of Conash. There are fifty six hectares left, and we control forty four of those. So quite a lot. Yeah, I didn't know you had a. Tradition, if you may say that, uh, to blend in white grapes in, in red wine, like they do in Chianti or yeah, yeah or in, in, in Ribera, but it was not to make red wine; it was to make rosé or claret, you know. So, so it was blended in, then they were they were they were left in the tank uh, for 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 a day or two, and then the whole thing was pressed uh, before the fermentation started. So you you got this sort of in between wine. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Okay, so you just briefly mentioned the PSI, and uh, I wanted to go to. Uh, San Emilian yeah. because in 2010 you, you kind of came home if you yeah. say so yeah. uh, to Bordeaux yeah I mean uh, again through my my uncle he went to Italy in 96 so him being out of Bordeaux I uh, had another lot of other friends uh, especially a lot of the people in San Emilian and I, 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 I came there every year and, and many times a year and there was always this idea that you know it could be fun to to try to do something. In 2010, I was approached by a good friend of mine, Silvio Dens, uh, who owned Chateau Bourgia, if we should do something together, and uh, and he wanted us to go 
and uh, we found this, this, this old vineyard on a plateau in San, San Christophe de Bart. Wonderful, really the, the, the very last part of, of Landstone Plateau of Saint-Imion. Really excellent. And it was, it was a good vineyard. Um, some replanted that slightly vigorous to begin with when I, I arrived there. And then a lot of old wines. If you go to Bordeaux right now, it's difficult to find of the top places really, really old wines. They have been sort of ripped out and, and replaced by top selections. And, and it will be great in a couple of years, but, but right now it's, it seems to be a problem that, that in certain wines there's a real lack of, of, of true depth that, that you get from, from the older wines. But, but we would tend to have this problem here. We have this, this possibility with, with Rochon. It will be interesting to see how far you can take it, uh, because it's not sort of in in the most traditional area of, of high quality top top top, but it certainly has the possibility to to get there if you work on a very very intensive scale. The the less good the terroir is, the more the more expensive it is to to really produce top grade from them. So, but that, as as it's not a that's not the reason why we have the vineyard studio and I we have own businesses well. so we can just you know do everything in order to, to try to create really really good 2010 fantastic vintage the vineyard suffered a lot it was very very stressed so the wine is a big wine but it's not necessarily uh, what I want to make there or anything the 11 is you can see there's a change in the vineyard management and everything but the vintage as 11 is not sort of a great vintage but it's very elegant and I love the wine the 12 was probably the first uh, wine we made that was that was approaching what we would like to 13 was a total wash, wash out and we didn't make or show the 14 is fantastic we just bottled it and that is really a, a nice wine and the 15 is there we are of all the newcomers because you have Quintus the Aubryon guys, they, they, they bought a vineyard there. Champon from uh, Le Pain, they bought a vineyard close by to us also. And of all these sort of newcomers to the area, we, we were the ones who got the highest scores last year in 15. So I'm, I'm very positive about what we're doing. I have a fantastic guy there running it. And um, uh, yeah, so, and, and 16 looks very promising also. So let's see. But it, it's, it's a, it's a, it, it, takes time to, to, to turn a radio around. It's not something you just do like that. It takes some time. So you can go. And I think we'll, uh, we'll end it there. Okay. So thank Good. you very much. You're welcome.